0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. This is the faithful few right here. That's who we are in this room. Man, time change Sunday. Isn't falling back a lot more fun than springing forward? Wow. Um, Exodus chapter 20, that's where we are this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20 is where you're going to need to be and. Uh, Just as you're turning there, a couple of things. One, wasn't last Sunday just a really special Sunday for us? Gosh, that was so good, getting to worship together. God was so kind to us last week, has been so kind to us over the last five and almost one-half years now. And uh, we're going to probably start doing that a couple of times a year, and just so we can all gather together, eat lunch together, do all that. And so God was just really, really kind to us last week. And I didn't get the chance to say this last week. Um, There you go. And so uh, um, but I wanted to go ahead and mention it, that two weeks ago, Brad Marvin preached, one of our church planting residents right now, and just did a fabulous job. Um, I, I listened to it. I was out that Sunday, and I got a chance to listen to that. And gosh, that really just ministered to my own heart. And I got to encourage him with how it, how it ministered to me. And if it ministered to you, I just want to encourage you to encourage him with that. That That's one of the ways that you can um, be helpful to guys that you listen to preach is by encouraging them in ways that it was helpful for you. And so make sure you encourage Brad with how um, that spoke to you that day. Okay, we are in Exodus chapter 20. Um, we are dealing with the second commandments. So I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to jump right in. Uh, commandment number, number one and number two. First six verses in Exodus 20, go like this. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So these words are written from a God who has said, I am the God who has redeemed you and rescued you. I loved what one commentator said. He said the 10 commandments were launched onto a sea of grace. And that sea of grace is verses one and two. Now you get to verses three, four, five, and 6 here. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation and of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, those, uh, to to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Father, will you right now just begin to illuminate your word? God, we need your help in a commandment like this. It's not easy to understand. It requires us to think. It requires your spirit to, to help us see this morning. So God, will you open our eyes to see the beautiful things from your law? God, will you open our eyes to these things? God, will you help us see? God, where scales are on our eyes this morning, God, will you, will you wipe the scales away? God, I pray for the next few minutes as we consider these things, God, that you would help us. God, will you please do that? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Okay, let me preface by saying you need to like get geared up and ready for this. This is not an easy one. All right, so if, if you're like way of sermon listening is to kind of sit back and not think, you're gonna be in trouble this morning. You're gonna have to get on the edge of your seat and you're gonna have to do some thinking this morning. I, I'm just, um, I'm gonna project this on you because I, I know it's true for me. So let me just explain this projection. I think that if I slid a piece of paper in front of you and on that piece of paper were all of the 10 commandments listed there for you. And at the top of that, that sheet, there was this statement. Please write a one paragraph description of each of the commandments. What is it saying? I think commandment number two would be the commandment that in this room would give us by far the most problems. I think it's one of the commandments that when you, if you're like me, you have maybe been exposed to it, you have heard it for much of your life, read it over and over repeatedly in your life, but you read over it quickly thinking that you have probably nailed it because when you think of a carved image, you're thinking, well, I don't have like a golden calf in my house. I don't dance around a totem pole in my backyard, so surely I'm good on this one. But just hear this. This is number two on God's top 10 list. Chances are it goes a little bit deeper than you having a golden bull in your house, right? So buckle up because it, it does go deeper than that. This is gonna apply to every one of us in the room in ways that we probably are not expecting it because we probably have it. and I'm just, again, projecting this across the room. For most of us, I think we have read this commandment without ever digging into it. We've read over it without every, you know, without ever lingering over it and asking the question, what is God trying to convince me of right now in this commandment? What is he trying to show me? And I think there's really good stuff in here for every one of us in the room. So we're going to kind of take this from three different angles this morning. Here's the first one. I want to try to clarify the command. I want to try to just kind of approach what what is God saying to us in this command, both on a negative level and on a positive level? What are the two sides of this command? Now let's just try to get the context really quickly of the first two commandments. I think it's important that we see both of these together and we don't just see them as separate kind of things, but it's important that we kind of lay them beside one another to help them build the context for what is God trying to show us in both of the two commandments. So to summarize, commandment number one is telling us this, That God is looking at us saying, I want you to worship the right God. That's the summary of commandment one. Commandment number two is God looking at us and saying this. Not only do I want you to worship me, the right God, I want you to worship me, the right God, in the right way. That's commandment number two. I'm the right God, yes, you've got that one, commandment number one. Now worship me the right way, or the right God in the right way. That's the heart of commandment number two. It is trying to convince us that God is particular about the way we are to approach him, the way we are to worship him. He's particular about that. Where the first commandment prohibits worshiping false gods, the second commandment prohibits worshiping the true God in false ways. Okay, you seen what's going on here? This is the heart of the, the second commandment. God is saying, Come after me, the right God, and come to me, worship me in ways that I have shown you, in what I would call the right ways. This is the second commandment. Now, you just have to read verses 5 and 6 to kind of get a sense of God is freight train serious about this thing. God is not joking around in the second commandment. So you just read verses 5 and 6, and God is making it very clear that I am very concerned, not just about you getting the right God issue down, not just about this idolatry issue of making sure you've got the right God that you're worshiping in your life, but I am freight train serious about you approaching me, the right God, in the right way. Okay, so now the question becomes, what is God prohibiting? What, what is, the, on the negative side, what is he saying, don't do this, That don't, stay away from this. What, what is he saying there? Now to make sense of that, I'm going to go back to the Heidelberg Catechism. This was written back in the 1500s. Catechism is just a simple question and answer. Here's the question. Here's a well-thought-out theological answer. The Heidelberg Catechism is one of the best in church history. Listen to how it answers this question. This is question 96 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's on the screen for you. It says this. Question 96, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? In other words, what, what is God tell, telling us? What, what is God expressing to us in the second commandment? Here's how it answers the question that we in no way make any image of God. In no way. There's multiple ways to make images of God and it's saying, in no way are you to make an image of God, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. So the second commandment is prohibiting us making any objects that would be a representation of God to worship God through or to aid in our worship of God. This is what it's prohibiting. It's saying, make no image of me. This is God's primary thing he's trying to convince us of. I want no images of me to be made by you in an effort to worship me. Okay, now let me clarify this. God is not, God is not against all making of things. In other words, God is not prohibiting making art, uh, you know, pictures, sculptures. He's not, he's not prohibiting the making of, of artistic type things. If you um, look at how God prescribed the people of Israel to build the temple in the Old Testament, it has all sort of beautiful artistic features in it. So God is not against the making of things. He is against the making of things that are trying to image forth him. He's against the making of things that are made in such a way that they are trying to give a, a representation of God to the world. That's what he is against. This is what the the commandment is prohibiting. Now, if you look in verse four, it's using the language of a carved image. So the question becomes, what in the world is a carved image? Let me try to make sense of this. Carved image, what what is that? I'm gonna put this definition on the screen of a carved image. A carved image is a man-made image of God. So it's an image that we are making in an effort to show someone who God is. It's a man-made image of God. Now, here is the key phrase in this. A carved image is a man-made image of God, whether physical or mental. Now, that last word, mental, breaks the second command out of the box that many of us have put it in, and it frees it now to sit right in our laps this morning. That it's God is not just saying, you break the second commandment when you make a carved image. Like when you make an image with your hands, it's a physical object. He's not just saying that. He's also saying you can break the second commandment equally well by making a mental image of me in your mind. It's both an in your mind thing and then a physical in your hands thing. And at the the end of the day, for, for a physical image of God to ever be made with our hands, it always starts in our minds. So the second commandment is primarily not addressing the physical object, but the mental object that creates the physical object. And when it comes to to mentally making pictures of God, imagining God in certain ways, this is every one of us in the room. Now this applies to our life. How do we see God? When we think about God, how do we think about God? This is what the second commandment is getting at. How are we thinking about God? How are we imaging forth God? When we think about God, what are the mental images that we have? I I like how one guy, one author says it. He says, anytime you hear a person say this, when when I think of God, I imagine him like this. Anytime you hear a person say that, you can, first of all, he says, you don't trust them because they're about to be wrong. So don't trust what they're about to say when they say, I'm picturing or I'm imagining God like this. You you can be sure that you can't trust them and you can be sure when you hear a person say that, that they are about to break the second commandment. This is what God is saying, don't do. Don't don't picture me as an image, whether something physically that you create or mentally that, that you put in your mind. I want no images of me. Okay, that's the negative side of the second commandment. Now the question becomes, what's the positive side? Okay, every commandment has two sides, right? It's got a negative, don't do this side, and it's got a positive, now walk in this and do this side of it. So what is that side of the second commandment? What, what is the heart of what God is saying? Now don't do that, but now do this. Come after me this way. So the heart of the second commandment is worshiping God the right way. It's looking at God and not reducing God down to an image. It's not subtracting God down, not not reducing God, not limiting God. It's it's coming to God and letting God be who he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. Now just think about some of the ways that God has revealed himself in the scriptures. He reveals himself as infinite, as majestic, as mind-blowing, as unsearchable, as ultimately wise, as spirit. He's revealed himself in all of these ways as just... He's, he's a mind-blowing God. Like if God put all he is in your mind, your mind would explode. He's revealed himself like that in the scriptures. And what the heart of this commandment is, is saying, let God be God. Let him be God. Let him be as mind-blowing as he says he is. See, now just think about this. In, in the Bible, um, when it comes to eternity, when it comes to heaven, the, the, the main attraction of heaven is not you reuniting with people that you love. The main attraction to heaven is God, Right? That's the main attraction. And the Bible presents a God that we are going to spend the rest of eternity getting to know in heaven. And the Bible is showing us that for all eternity, now eternity is a long time, isn't it? I mean, we're talking like billions and billions and billions of years, right? I mean, it's like it keeps going. And the Bible is saying to us that for the billions and billions, it just keeps going, for all of that time, we are going to be learning and knowing more and more and more and more about this mind-blowing God, and we're going to wake up every day with fresh amazement at him. Now that's the God that the Bible presents. And the second commandment, the heart of it is saying, let that God be God. Come to him like that. Don't reduce him down to an image. Don't, Don't limit him by viewing him as an image. Okay, this is the heart of the second commandment. Don't reduce God. Let God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures to be, let him be that. Don't constrain him. Don't put him in a little image box. Let him be all that he says he is in the scriptures. That's the heart of the second commandment. Listen to J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, chapter four, deals with the second commandment, does a wonderful job in it. Listen to how he describes it. He says negatively, I think this is on the screen for you, yeah. Negatively, the second commandment is a warning against ways of worship and religious practice that lead us to dishonor God and to falsify his truth. Positively, it is a summons to us to recognize that God the creator is transcendent, mysterious, inscrutable, beyond the range of any imagining or any philosophical guesswork of which we are capable. And hence a summons to us, it's the heart of the second commandment, and hence a summons to us to humble ourselves, to listen and learn of him, and to let him teach us what he is like and how we are to think of him. That's the heart of the second commandment. It, it is pushing back against the innate kind of default mode of the human heart to scale God down to bring him down into categories that we can understand and we can kind of get our arms around. It's pushing back against that tendency, that default mode in our heart. Okay, this is the second commandment. Now we need to deal with the reasons for the second commandment. Like, why does God give us the second commandment? It's obvious that the second commandment is really important to God. Right after God gives the Ten Commandments, if you keep reading down in Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 22. Right after he's just given the Ten Commandments. Now look at the next thing God reiterates after he just gave the Ten Commandments to us. Verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have, you have seen for yourselves that I have taught from you from heaven. In other words, on Mount Sinai, God just gave the law, but God did not physically come down and like show himself to the people or to Moses. It's not the way God worked. Moses heard from God, but he did not see God. So he's saying, in light of that, everyone just heard me, but they didn't see me. Now know this, verse 23. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Right after he just gives the 10 commandments, he just reiterates commandment number two again. Now, if you went to uh, Deuteronomy chapter four, this is right before in Deuteronomy five, God re-gives the law and kind of reiterates the law to the people of Israel, the 10 commandments. In Deuteronomy four, right before that, he does the same thing. He reminds the people of commandment number two again. So obviously this is important to God. The question is, why is not making an image of God, whether physical or mental in our mind, why is that so important to God? Why is God so hung up on that? Let me give you a couple of reasons for that. Here's the first one. Reason number one is images of God obscure God. Images of God obscure God. The the problem with images is they can't help but teach wrongly about God. Now, now, sailor right there for a second. The problem with images is they h- can't help but teach wrongly about God. Okay, I just think about any image, a physical image, a mental image of God. Any image of God, whether painting, picture, sculpture in your mind, any image of God that, that's used to, you know, to represent God, any image used to represent God will always conceal more of God than it reveals. Any image of God, mental or like something you actually create as a picture of God. Any image of God will always conceal more of God than it reveals. It will show you a truth about God, reveal a truth about God, but at the same time, conceal so much more about God than it actually reveals. So let me just give you an illustration of this. If you flip forward in the biblical narrative to Exodus 32, just go ahead and flip over there real quick. Here's what you'll find kind of between Exodus 20 and Exodus 32. Um, in Exodus 24, God calls Moses back up on the hill and, and Moses is up with God for another 40 days. Okay, Exodus 24 and beyond, Moses is up with God. And the people of Israel, they grow anxious. They're like, man, what has happened to Moses? He's probably died up there. God's probably killed him. And what are we gonna do now? So they looked to, to, to Aaron and they say, make for us a God. So Aaron gets their gold and he makes a God for them. And then it makes a little golden calf for them. And then in verse four, it says this. Uh, Moses, or Aaron looks at the people who have just said, make for us a God and says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay, now think about this for just a second. This is not a commandment one issue as much as it is a commandment two issue. The people of Israel are worshiping in this moment the right God. It's the God who just freed them out of the land of Egypt. It's Yahweh. It's that God that's done that. So they've got the right God in Exodus 32. They are just worshiping the right God in the wrong way. It's a commandment to issue. They're they're coming to God. They've made a physical representation of God in this little golden calf that they're trying to worship God with and through to aid in their worship. And God is saying, don't do that. Okay, now think about this for a second. Now think about the question, what is wrong with the golden calf? Why why is God so upset about that? Now think of it from Aaron's point of view. Aaron is looking at the golden calf and saying, but God, this represents you. I mean, God, this is, you're strong, aren't you? Well, a bull is strong. You're powerful, aren't you? Like, this bull is powerful. You're, just, you're strong enough to save us from the land of Egypt. This bull is showing us a picture of you, this strong God who can save us from the land of Egypt. So, what, what is wrong with this? This is showing us you, it's representing you. This bull is just like you, God. Now, what would God say to that? Really? You're telling me I'm a bull. I've got a problem with that, God is saying. Now, if you're God, what would be your problem with that? It is revealing a part of you, like one aspect of you, but it's concealing so much more of you, isn't it? It's, proje- it's making this projection on you that you are this, when if you're God, you're saying, but I'm so much more than that. And I'm so much more than that, you calling me this actually offends me, right? So, so it's, it's revealing one part of God, but it's not doing the full picture of God. I think about God's response to this. He would probably say something like this. Um, Yeah, that that does show one part of me. It shows my power, but what about my purity? What what about my love? What about my gentleness? It doesn't say anything about that of me. Yes, it's showing one part of me, but it's, it's concealing all of these other things. I think God would say, no, that bull doesn't represent me. That bull reduces me. That bull brings me down to just being this, when I am so much more than that. Do you see how it it always obscures? See, this is always the problem um, with, with images. They always obscure God. They always reduce God down to this little thing, and God is looking at that little thing saying, I am so much more than that. That is not all that I am. I am more than that picture that you're looking at. See, they always have a way of obscuring God. They hide so much of God, even though they might reveal a part of God, they hide so much of God that an image will always in the end give you a false God. You see how that works? Uh, let me give you, well, uh, J.I. Packer, he goes on to say it like this. He says, the heart of the objection to pictures and images is that they inevitably conceal most, if not all, of the truth about the personal nature and character of the divine being whom they represent. See, that's the problem with images. They always obscure God to the point of giving you a false God in the end. Now, let me just apply it in one other way that is probably a little um, closer to home for some of us. How about a crucifix? This is a cross with Jesus on the cross, right? Probably some blood coming down on it, right? So, you know, most Protestant churches don't have a crucifix in it. And the reason has everything to do with the second commandment, not trying to show an image of God. Now, why is that? So when you think about Jesus on a cross and that physical image being the representation of God, it is showing us a part of God. It is showing God in his weakness and humility. It is showing a part of God, but it's not showing all of God. Is Jesus on a cross today? No. Is Jesus weak today? No, Jesus is on his throne today in absolute authority and in absolute power, right? Right? Revelation shows us the picture of God, of Jesus, um, sitting on a white horse ready to come back for his bride with a flaming sword coming out of his mouth, his, his robe dipped in blood, ready to do vengeance on his enemies. Do you see, how, you see the problem with that? It's just showing us a picture of God, but it isn't the full representation of God. In any, and this is the problem with every image of God, they just don't say enough. They tell us something about God, but because they conceal so much of God, in the end, they will always obscure God and give us a false God. This is why God is saying, do not make an image of me, whether it be physical or whether it be mental. So this is reason number one. Here's reason number two. Number number one, they obscure God. Images of God always obscure God. Reason number two, images of God always mislead the people. Images of God, if, if you have an image of God, it will always mislead you. Wrong, now listen to this. Wrong worship, wrong worship always leads to wrong living. Sailor right there. Linger there for just a second. Wrong worship will always lead to wrong living. Every time, wrong worship will lead to wrong living. Just consider again Exodus 32. We just talked about this. So Exodus 32 is this moment where the people of God they make this golden calf and they begin to worship this golden calf right? This whole thing plays out. Now think about the the calf again. He is all power, no purity. So their view of God is now being shaped by a calf, and that view of God is convincing them that the God they worship, he is strong, he can save, he can deliver, but that God is not a pure God. Can we just all agree that that a bull is not a pure animal? And maybe we can say it this way. A bull is not selective in its breeding, is it? No, it's not a pure. It's not... Purity is not an aspect of a bull's kind of qualities or makeup, right? Now, here's what Exodus 32 shows us. That what we worship, we instantly become. So now here's how the the story in Exodus begins to play out. They begin to worship this bull, this picture of God, who is all power, no purity. And, And then the next day they wake up and they kind of declare this solemn assembly, this festival to the Lord. And here's what it says in Exodus 32, verse six. It says, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings to this bull as an effort to worship God. And then it says this, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now that last phrase, rose up to play in Exodus 32, 6 is a loose translation. That that rose up to play is another way of saying, because kids are in the room, I'll say it this way. They were not selective in their breeding. That's what it's saying. That they are eating and drinking and they're not being overly selective in their breeding. Okay, this is is the issue that just happened in Exodus 32. That they worshipped a God who is all power and no purity and now their lives are now shaped by that view of God. They are now a people who are celebrating a God who cares about power, but who does not care about their purity and their lives begin to take on the image of the God they just worshiped. See, this is the point of of wrong worship. This is one of the reasons God is saying, don't make an image of me, is your wrong worship will always lead to a wrong way of living. This is how the equation works. Okay, this is the equation. An image of God will always distort God. So if you make an image, if you have an image in your mind, something you're worshiping out here that you have made, that image will always distort God. And you will begin to worship that distorted God. And when you make God distorted and you worship that distorted God, in the end, that will always equal you having a distorted life. Okay, this is, the, this is why God is saying, don't make for yourself an image. If you make an image of me, it's going to distort me. You're going to have a wrong view of me. And that wrong view of me, when you worship me, that's going to affect the way that you live. See, when it comes to the second commandment, it is not abstract and theoretical. It is right in the middle of your life. See, any place in your life right now where you are having a hard time, where where there is havoc being wreaked in your life right now, where obedience is just not an option for you, you can bet underneath every one of those areas of your life is a wrong view of God leading to a wrong life. Now hear that. That is how prevalent breaking the second commandment is. Every area of your life where you are having a hard time obeying, Right underneath that is an image of God that is distorting God, therefore leading to wrong living in your life. Do you see that? This is why God is saying, don't make an image of me. Don't do that. It's going to mislead you. It's going to lead to a wrong way of living. See, the Bible gives two options in our worship. Either we will worship the right God in the right way, and that will lead to our restoration Or we can worship the right God in the wrong way and that will lead to our ruin just like it does the people of Israel in Exodus 32. Those are the options. They will always, images will always mislead us. It will always affect the way that we're living. And here's the third reason. Images of God dishonor God. Images of God dishonor God. Images of God falsify God to such a degree that God looks at an image and says, I Look at verse 5. I am jealous. My my jealousy is aroused. I do not like what I'm seeing. It dishonors God to the point. It subtracts God. It reduces God. it, It does violence to the character and the attributes of God to such a point that it inflames the anger of God. So it dishonors God. This is what images do. This is why God is saying, don't do them. It falsifies me to such a degree that it arouses my jealousy. Now, at the risk of having a mini-sermon within a sermon, we need to deal with verses 5 and 6 really quickly. I want to read verses 5 and 6 to you. I, I thought about kind of work, just bypassing and working on just the point of the commandment. But this, these two verses are misunderstood enough where I think we need to, to linger over them for just a moment. Look at verses 5 and 6. Okay, the images of God dishonor God. It inflames his, his jealousy. This is what it says in verses five and six here. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's, that's proper jealousy. It's not like a uh, kind of the jealousy that we would normally think of. That is a holy and a righteous sort of jealousy. It's a jealousy that a godly husband would feel if his wife gets seduced by another lover. It's that jealousy, pure, holy, righteous jealousy. That's the jealousy God feels when we make images of him that reduce him to the point of falsifying him. But then you get the rest of verses five and six that are really prone to misunderstanding. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what in the world does that mean? There's a lot of misunderstanding about that. Let me just let me throw out what I think it doesn't mean first just to clear this up and then we'll talk about what it does mean. I do not think this passage is saying that a righteous child will be punished by God for the sins of a wicked father. That is not what this passage is saying. Right beside this passage, right uh, th- this reference Ezekiel 18:20 just write that down right beside verses five and six. It's important that we read this passage in light of the rest of scriptures, in particular Ezekiel eighteen twenty. Let me read this for you. It's going to be up on the screen just for easy reference. Ezekiel eighteen twenty says this: "The soul who sins shall die." It should be on the screen. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Okay, now what is Ezekiel 18:20 showing us? It is showing us that when we by faith, you know, throw our life upon Jesus, we are considered righteous. And that is apart from our mom or dad being righteous or wicked. He is saying in Ezekiel 18:20, that's going to be a you thing. That's on you thing. There's gonna be a moment where you're gonna stand before God and you're going to be responsible for your own sin and for your own either lack of faith in God or your faith in God. That you're gonna be responsible for that one day. Not your father, not, not your parents, not your grandparents, not your great-grandparents. That's gonna be a you thing. That's Ezekiel 20. That You're gonna be responsible for you. I'm gonna be responsible for me. We're all gonna be responsible for ourselves at the end of the day. That's where the line is drawn. Okay, so the question now becomes, and by the way, let me just balance that, Ezekiel 18, with this idea of we're all gonna be responsible with this. When you read uh, you, you know, this passage, I think there ought to be um, a weight placed on parents to know that parenting is a weighty thing. And parents, you have a profound shaping on the future of your kids. That, that what we sow as parents is going to be sown into future generations. I think as parents, we need to feel that in a really weighty way in this passage. We need, like, Think about David as a, for instance, that, that guy sinned and that affected family for multiple generations. That ripped his family apart. I, I grew up with a guy that uh, I watched his dad after he would lose a, like in a sporting event type moment. I watched his dad just berate him. There was a moment where I watched his dad physically abuse him for losing a match one time. Now, just think, parents, that is going to produce certain things for that kid. If that was your story growing up, you had abuse like that growing up, I can guarantee that the world is not going to feel as safe as it should for you. There is no doubt that is going to affect future generations. So parents, there is a sense in which we should feel that when we read this passage. That our sin does have a way of impacting future generations. Okay, so, but what what is this text saying in particular? I think the text is saying something like this. I think it's saying that God's judgment will be on those who walk in the way of the parents and grandparents. It's not gonna be because of the sin of their grandparents, you know, and parents. It's gonna be, be because they have walked in the way of their parents and grandparents. And I think the last little phrase in verse five is the key to that. Of those who hate me. It's those who pick up the sin of their grandparents and parents and who actually live in that in a posture that says, God, I want nothing to do with you. That's who that is applying to in verse five. when God is saying, I'm going to visit the iniquity of their sin on the third and fourth generation, it's saying of those who pick up the sin of their parents and their grandparents, and they keep walking in that sin. That's who it's going to be on. That's who's going to get the judgment and the condemnation of God when it's all said and done. I I like how one author, how he put it, he said, uh, you know, maybe you could picture it like the flu, that if 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 you're a parent and you have the flu in your home, if you have the flu as a parent, it doesn't mean your kids are just gonna start throwing up, right? It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that they are much more likely to catch the flu and start throwing up. I think that's the picture of, of this passage. When, if, if you continually resist God as a parent, you say no to God as a parent, if you continually do that as a parent, you are making an environment where your kids are much more likely to pick that up and to follow in that sort of a way. Now that is the sort of weightiness that comes around parenting, isn't it? Gosh, that's terrifying. I, I think when we read th- th- this passage, verse five in particular, that there should be two things that, that we should feel when it's all said and done. This is the two balancing statements. First of all, if, if we're kids in the room, that have grown up in homes, that your parents and your grandparents, we should know this. this, We should feel this when we read this verse, that your grandparents and parents don't create your future by either their obedience to God or their disobedience to God. That your parents don't do that. At the end of the day, that is on you. You're gonna be responsible for that. I'm gonna be responsible for how I responded to those circumstances. Now, here's the other end of that for parents. Parents can, now listen to this, parents, hear this. Gosh, this is so weighty to think about. Parents, you can, we can, by their faithfulness, parents can, by their faithfulness to God or faithlessness to God, give their children a downhill slide to either righteousness or wickedness. Parents, we're creating an environment that's gonna give our our kids a downhill slide to one of those two things. Ultimately, my kids are gonna have to stand before God and answer themselves. But as a parent, I need to feel this weight. And by the way, I I got this as a kid. My parents raised me in such a way where they set me at the top of a hill and they gave me a gentle push down the hill that led to righteousness. Some of us in the room grew up with with moms and dads in a totally crazy home where they put us at the top of the hill, gave us a gentle push or even a shove down the hill that led to wickedness. And we need to feel as parents, our goal as parents who are trying to raise our kids to know the Lord is to set our kids at the top of the hill, give them the gentle push. And by the way, at the end of the day, it's God who saves. God is sovereign in all these things. But our job is to put our kids at the top of the hill, give them the shove that will lead them down into the path of righteousness where God is most likely to bring his miracle of salvation. That is the role that we have as parents. And we need to feel that as parents. And then you get to verse six. I I love this. In verse five, it's my, you know, I'm gonna visit with my jealousy, I'm gonna visit, you know, their sins of the third and fourth generation. Then you get to verse six and it's, but I'm gonna show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, it's not trying to be literal. It's not trying to say for this one, it's three to four generations. And for this one, it's a whole thousand of them. It's, It's trying to be metaphorical. It's trying to say, I think this is the way I would summarize what God is saying in verse six. My willingness to love and show grace is so much bigger than my willingness to condemn and judge. That we have a God who is so much more willing to pour out grace and mercy than he is willing to judge and bring condemnation. Aren't we glad we have a God like that? Amen. Gosh, aren't we grateful for that? Amen. Let me end by this. I wanna to try to apply it in a few different ways and then we'll we'll wrap up here. Applying the command. Let me give a couple of applications to this. How does this land in our life? How should we be thinking about this in our practical everyday living? Number one, we need to be aware of making false images of God, of creating God in our own image. Gosh, we are so prone to do this. We've got to be very careful about doing this. And when I think about the application of this commandment, I am not overly worried about, man, do we have golden bulls in our homes? That's not what I'm overly worried about in this room. What I am overly worried about in this room is what, it, what are our mental images of God? That's what I'm worried about. Okay, hear this. We are not free to think about God any way that we like. We are called by God to think about him in the ways that he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. We are not free. If, if we think we are free to think of God any old way we like, Like, I just like to think of God and imagine God like this. If we think we're free to do that, we are breaking the second commandment and that is going to have massive effects on your life. I I used this illustration a few weeks ago that if you could imagine me going up to Laura and saying, "Um, Laura, you have the most beautiful blonde hair that I've ever seen. Your eyes have the the prettiest color of blue. That that hue is just absolutely amazing. And if you could just imagine Laura looking back at me and saying, "Um, in one way that sounds sweet, but it's really kind of offensive to me. I don't have blonde hair and I don't have blue eyes. That is how we treat God so often. We, we come to God saying, but God, I love the fact that you're like this. And God is saying, what? I, but I'm not like that. God, I love to think of you like, and God is saying, but I, that's, that's not me. You're, you're projecting something on me. That's not who I say I am. You, you just made me in your own image. Now here's, how, here's a telltale sign that you have made God in your own image, is if the God that you serve always agrees with you. And here's the truth. Most of us serve a God who always agrees with us. We've made a God in our own little image. Um, I, I saw this tweet by Chris Rock, don't judge me. And uh, he, he posted this picture and his kind of lead up to it is, um, here's the God of white Republicans. And here, the picture was a, if you could just picture kind of it's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount-ish. It's that sort of a thing. He's on this rock. It's it's Jesus' robe on, I mean, the whole thing. And he's carrying a shotgun in his right hand. And then the caption beside Jesus with a shotgun in his right hand said this. If they're hungry, cut the benefits to programs that feed them. If they're sick, deny them health care. If they're strangers, deport them. And then it says, this comes from this book in the Bible, this new book called Republican 1324. Now I wanna wade in here and hope I survive, but we'll see. Um, if, If the God that you serve agrees with your political agenda, every one of them, you can just bet that you're breaking the second commandment. That you've broken, you've just made God in your own image. You have fashioned God to be a God. If that's you, I'll guarantee you this, your God looks a lot like you a lot like you. And when your God looks a lot like you, you are breaking the second commandment and that is going to have drastic effects on your life. God is saying, no, I don't wanna look like you. That robs me of being me if you're trying to make me look like you. I wanna look like me. And the only way you're gonna get that is when you open up the scriptures and you see how I reveal myself to be. So don't boil me down, don't reduce me. Don't do violence to my character and my attributes by boiling me down to looking like you. I I love how um, Martin Luther says this. He says, people want to to say to to this to God. They want to say, what, what I'm doing will please and glorify God. But God does not allow us to tell him how he would be served. He has revealed to us in the scriptures how he is to be served. See, here's the problem. In every culture and every time and place, there are parts about God that feel like rough edges to us. There are parts of God that we don't like. There are attributes of God that we don't care for. Every time and culture has had them. If we were to go back 100 years, theirs would be different than ours. But we've got ours in our culture that we don't like. Some of us don't like the fact that God says, I am full of wrath. Some of us don't like the fact that God says he's absolutely sovereign over everything that ever happens on this planet. Some of us don't like in a real feminist sort of society that God says, I've created us equal, but with different roles. See, we all have parts of God that we're looking at and saying, God, I'll take this part of you, but that part, I'm gonna just cut that out and act like that doesn't exist. I'm gonna make God in my own image. And God is saying, you are not free to think about God any way you like. The most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. And it is imperative. The second commandment is telling us, we've gotta let God define how we are seeing him. We've got to let God define how we think of him. We can't use our own little mental images that look a lot like us to define our God. So we've got to be aware of of mental images that make God in our own image. We've We've got to be careful of that. Here's the second way to apply it. To keep the second commandment, it requires this, that we are consistently communing with God over his word. See, the question is, where do you get your thoughts of God? For most people in our culture, here's how it works. It's one part Bible mixed with one part kind of family tradition passed down, mixed with one part kind of cultural folklore, kind of the cultural hot topics. And you meld those three things together, that's how we get our picture of God. That, that is likely shaping so much of how we think about God. And the only way to fight against that is for you to consistently open up your Bible and ask the question, God, what do you say about you? What are you showing me about you? How should I be thinking about you? God, you're gonna have to show me that. The only way we are ever going to keep from mental images that falsify God is by opening up his word and saying to God, show me what you're like, show me. I love how J.R. Packer says this. He says, God is not the sort of person that we are uh, not the sort of person we are, his wisdom, his aims, his scale of value, his mode of procedure differs so vastly from our own that we cannot possibly guess our way to them by intuition or infer them by analogy from our notion of ideal manhood. In other words, we can't just look around and, and get the right thoughts about God. It takes more than just looking around and seeing things. We cannot know him unless he speaks and tells us about himself. But in fact, he has spoken. He has spoken to us through his prophets and apostles, and he has spoken to us in the words and deeds of his son. Through this revelation, which he, which he has made available to us in the Holy Scripture, we may, from a very, we may form a true notion of God. Without it, we never can. Thus, it appears that the positive force of the second commandment is that it compels us to take our thoughts of God from his own word and from no other source whatsoever. We cannot keep the second commandment without communing with God over his word, asking for God to clarify who he is. Can I just plead with you, read your Bibles. It is imperative to your life to read your Bible. Get on our Bible reading plan. Get our scripture memory stuff. Memorize scripture, read the scripture. That is the only hope we have for for thinking about God in right ways. And lastly, and we're done here. The only way to keep the, the second commandment is we have to keep on and keep on and keep on looking to Jesus. That's the only way we're ever going to do it. It's so interesting to track the second commandment through the, the, the narrative of the scriptures. I mean, you know, it's interesting Mount Sinai, God's giving the 10 commandments, but you see no God there. The, the, the visual is de-emphasized, swept away, and it's all verbal. You don't see God giving the 10 commandments. You hear God giving the 10 commandments. So, so it's all verbal, no visual. Now just keep, you keep tracking that forward and God begins to, to give directions on making the temple. And it's so interesting. You've got God saying, construct this temple. Inside the temple is gonna be the Holy of Holies. Inside that, there's gonna be this Ark of the Covenant. And on that Ark, there's gonna be this, this lid, this seat. It's gonna be pure gold, that lid, that seat. And then there's gonna be these two cherubim that are gonna kind of come over this seat. And it's gonna make this beautiful picture. And this seat is gonna be right in the middle of the Holy of Holies where my presence is gonna dwell and my people are going to meet me. And if you would have had any guy in that time and place walk into that Holy of Holies and you were to ask them, what do you think is going to be on that seat, that mercy seat where these cherubim are? What do you think is going to be on that? Every person who ever walked in there would have thought something's going to be on that. There's going to be an object. There's going to be an image. There's going to be something on that seat. But you know what's ironic? Nothing's on that seat. Now, why is that? One commentator says it this way. He did not want his people trying to make an image of him because his purpose was to show himself to his people in the person of Christ. The fulfillment of the second commandment is in the birth of Jesus. That's where the second commandment happens. See, there is a pure part of all of us that says, I wanna see God. I don't just want to hear from him. I want to see him with my own eyes. And and God, in answer to that, and by the way, the reason we want that is because in seeing God, God becomes tangible and more personal to us. He becomes closer to us. That's the whole draw of images. And God, in response to our want to be close to him, has given us an image. He's given us his son, the perfect representation of him. He sent him to live for us, to die for us, to to rise from the dead on the third day so that we would have an image of God that would be the exact imprint, the exact representation. So we would now for the rest of eternity have a closeness with God. This is how the New Testament describes Jesus. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. John 14.9, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Colossians 2.9, for in Jesus, the fullness of deity, uh, deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the nature of God. Second Corinthians 4.6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How has God given us the light of the glory of the knowledge of God? Here's how he's done it. In the face of Jesus Christ. If we wanna see God, here's how we see him. We keep looking upon Jesus in the scriptures. That's how we keep seeing God. That's how we get God close to us. That is how God has met us and our desire to be personal with God is in the person of his son. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow God to speak and to press upon you the things that would be most important this morning. And we get the chance to end our service this morning by communion, which throughout church history has always been one of the ways that God has said, here's how I want you to think about me. This is going to be one of the, the visible representations that I want to teach you about me. When we dip the bread in the juice, we are being reminded this morning that God has come close to us in Jesus. That he has sent his son to live perfectly for us, the life we could never live, to die in our place and to rise on the third day. This is how God has met us in the second commandment, is in the person of Jesus. And when it comes to taking communion, the first thing we've got to know about it is it is for those who know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, the only way we know Jesus is by putting our faith in him, by turning from our sin and throwing our life upon him. This is what repentance or faith is in the Bible. So we want to invite you to do that. If you haven't done that, before you take communion, don't take communion until you have taken Christ this morning. And if that's you, fill out one of, that, one of those cards under your seat. Fill that out. Check that box on establishing a relationship with Jesus. Put that in the, the little offering basket at the end of the service. We would love to celebrate that with you. And what a great morning for you to take Jesus, to throw your life upon him. You can do that right now where you are in your seat. For those who have taken Christ, communion is for those who are in right relationship with God. So if there is any part of your life right now where you are saying no to God, we want to invite you, this is your morning, to get down on your knees before God and say, I'm not going to say no anymore. I'm going to open up my hands. God, whatever you want with my life, that's what I'm going to do. Communion is for those people who are coming to God with empty hands, nothing in your hands. So if that's you this morning, you're welcome to come up and take communion. And if you have kids with you, um, if they are Christians, you're welcome to come and take communion with you. If not, I'd encourage you to bring them up. This would be a great thing for them to see you do. Great conversation on the way home about what that means. And so we have a couple of tables, a couple in the front, one in the back, or a couple in the back, and and you can... uh, Dip the bread and the juice at the table, and you can take communion with us. So we're going to give you a moment to do business with God just where you are, and as you're ready, come up and take communion. So, Father, will you meet us right here? God, will you show us where we have made images of you that falsify you, that reduce you, that limit you, that obscure you? God, we, want to, we don't want to just worship the right God. We want to worship you, the right God, in the right way. So, God, will you, in your grace, help us do that? It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.